Welcome to this Stroke Journey podcast, brought to you by the National Stroke Education Center at the University of Cincinnati, your premier source for comprehensive diagnostic and therapeutic stroke education from the pre-hospital and emergency settings through the ICU and rehabilitation. Please welcome today's host, Dr. Jordan Bonomo. Hello, thank you for joining us for this roundtable with the National Stroke Education Center. I'm Dr. Jordan Bonomo. I'm an emergency medicine physician and neurointensivist at the University of Cincinnati, member of the UC Stroke Team, and a colleague to the two gentlemen with me today. Two of my friends, people I trust dearly, and people from whom you are going to learn today about ICH management and anticoagulation reversal and where to send the ambulances. I have the distinct pleasure today of working with Associate Professor and Critical Care Pharmacist, Dr. Chris Drogi, a man I've known for some time, and my other partner in emergency medicine and in the stroke world, Dr. Christopher Richards, soon to be Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine. Gentlemen, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Here we go. Anticoagulated ICH patients, right? They're a nightmare for all of us. We're scared by them. We're worried they're going to keep bleeding. The state of the art has changed a bit over the last few years. We've got some new drugs to maybe help. We've got some ambulances that may go to different places than they did in the past. It's riled in politics, global finance, macroeconomics. Teach me. Are we ready to manage these patients, and should we be sending them to specific places? Dr. Drogi, go. Well, what's interesting is when you when you talk about these agents, again, a lot of people have moved away from like the historical standards like warfarin, right? I mean, warfarin is almost second nature in how to handle, although I will argue that um, even the way we manage it, we still have not really fully done what could be qualified as reversal. Now you have these other agents, which we've moved on from calling novel to direct. Like it's almost wrong to call them novel because they're not novel anymore. They've been out for almost 10 years. But the reversal strategies, we were talking about this a little bit before we started, the data that have come out, you're, you're not looking at a robust library of data. You can't go to PubMed and, and type these in and find, you know, grade A level evidence to guide you on the reversal because you're right. There's a lot of debate. Is it, is it neutralization? And when I say that, I mean actually reversing the pharmacodynamics, the activity that the drug has on the body, or is it factor repletion? Um, a lot of people got excited when we got drugs that actually neutralize these drugs, um, such as indexin to alpha for the oral anti-TNA inhibitors. But I, I will tell you, over time, I've become less, you know, immortalized with indexin to alpha and believe that four-factor PCC at a reasonable dose could do enough in certain cases to provide not so much reversal, but the necessary factor repletion that may abate some of the life-threatening components of bleeds, depending on what they're presenting with. So, and again, we, we don't have good comparative studies, ones that we would look for to truly guide this. And you can even see this through iterations of expert consensus panels. I'm, I'm not even going to say guidelines, because gui guidelines could be difficult without good grade criteria involved in them. And those data aren't there. Still to date, some of the best we have are single center retrospective studies, or maybe two or three centers. Those are the most robust. Um, those are the ones that don't get me terribly excited, but you work with the best you have and then include your own expert opinion and clinical question. So you just took away my safety blanket and you told me that the new fancy drug that I think reverses uh, directoral anticoagulants may not be all that I think it is or the literature has thus far shown to me. And that scares me. And then I'm going to ask you, Dr. Richards, so he takes away my safety blanket. Does that change where you think about sending patients? Well, so the whole environment of, of stroke has changed since 2015, right? And that has certainly trickled down to us in the pre-hospital environment, especially when it comes to screening for severe types of stroke. 
So before then, of course, we screen for stroke, and in a stroke system of care, we'd bring a suspected stroke patient to a stroke center. Well, that all changed with the advent of thrombectomy-capable stroke centers and comprehensive stroke centers. And that additional level of screening is predicated on severe stroke screening, and there's a lot out there, and there's other information um, that you can find about that. But most of those studies are actually looking for the outcome of large vessel occlusion. And I think it's an important question for, for us to ask, especially in this conversation, about what really is the best clinical outcome. Is it large vessel occlusion? Is it large vessel occlusion amenable to endovascular therapy? Or is it severe stroke syndrome, which includes both large vessel occlusion and hemorrhagic stroke? Because it's not uncommon for a hemorrhagic stroke patient to present similar to a large vessel occlusion. That gets really complicated because if there are thrombectomy-capable stroke centers in the system, well, their certification is for endovascular therapy. It's not necessarily hemorrhagic stroke management like the advanced um, reversal agent conversations that we're having here. So it gets very complicated when you're dealing with a screen, especially when that screen's outcome has been adjudicated against an ischemic stroke diagnosis rather than a hemorrhagic stroke diagnosis. Well, let me ask you a potentially controversial question then. When patients are injured in the field traumatically, and we don't know how bad that traumatic injury is, we don't try to pretend that we can figure it out. We take them to a level one trauma center. Should that be the same thing with stroke now, perhaps? Well, I think it's a really good question. And actually, if you look at um, most of the American Heart Association guidelines in detail, most of the information that they would point to actually speaks to comprehensive stroke centers. And the reality is that all things being equal, the recommendations, guidelines, and otherwise from national organizations like American Heart Association would actually point to comprehensive stroke center as the preferred destination. Now, thrombectomy-capable stroke centers have a critically important role. They provide advanced therapies. They usually have advanced diagnostics. Oftentimes, they can provide um, a degree of, of care for the hemorrhagic stroke patients, just not to the external certification level. And so agnostic to an eventual diagnosis and just based on screens, I think it's an important question that you raised, Dr. Monomo, in terms of what truly is the best destination for those patients. It's complicated, right? It's not getting any easier. We have all this new technology. We have uh, CT scans and ambulances. We can carry drugs on uh, ALS units, but it's not getting any simpler, is it? You know, the best uh, and highest performing severe stroke screen turns out to be the non-contrast head CT uh, <laughs> that I'm able to provide in the mobile stroke unit that I'm a medical director of. So, you know, it does bring an interesting question because, you know, sometimes I conceptualize that mobile stroke unit as an, as, as an acute stroke-ready hospital on wheels where truly you can move from screen to diagnosis in those situations. You're dealing with concrete uh, information. I was working in the ED last night and your mobile stroke unit saw a patient scanned him and treated him with TPA before they brought him into the ED. And it turns out it was, in fact, a stroke. That was a good call. But I think you're right. It's a, it's a mobile stroke-ready hospital. Uh, fascinating. So does your mobile stroke-ready hospital carry reversal agents? So uh, we went um, through a lot of discussion, actually, in terms of what we would do in terms of hemorrhagic stroke management. Um, we do. Uh, we have uh, four-factor uh, purified concentrate, plasma concentrate. Uh, we carry that. We don't carry any of the other uh, specific uh, reversal agents like indexin alpha or uh, daricizumab. And that was partly a decision that we made in reviewing what guidance is out there. Dr. Drogi made a great point about the limited controlled trial data that's out there. But we do have some consensus recommendations and best practices that would say for the DOACs, and at least at this point, 
those more specific agents might be the best agent. Now, I'm very sympathetic to the point that you made about maybe the four-factor actually being a good agent to be used in most situations. But the reality is that our mobile stroke unit and, and most environments that mobile stroke units um, operate in transport to a variety of different receiving hospitals, comprehensive or otherwise. And depending on the clinical presentation, the nature of the uh, head CT, and other potential factors, that decision about what medication is best could be variable. And our transport times, in conjunction with hard data that I can't really point to that says an additional five-minute time savings for a reversal agent gets you that, this much better clinical outcome. We decided to carry agents that um, are really kind of tried and true for especially some of the, the, the older agents like Coumadin that we could potentially offer reversal agents uh, to prior to hospital arrival. All right. So you got a patient in the mobile stroke unit their stroke screen is positive for bleeding because that's what your fancy machine does. The family member sitting there in the parking lot saying, no, 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 grandpa's on warfarin, right? So you got your four-factor PCCs and you're comfortable treating there. But instead, the family member doesn't say warfarin. They say, no, no, he's taking one of those fancy new ones. I don't know what it's called, Zarelto or something like that. Dr. Drogi, four-factor PCCs in the back of the mobile stroke unit, or should we wait to get to a center that has Indexinet? There's, a, again, you talked about it not being easy. This yeah. is one of those, I know it's going to be everybody's favorite answer. It depends. It, it, there's a lot of how quickly can you get to the center, right? That's always a question you have to ask. If you have a mobile hospital, effectively a mobile unit, um, I, I think that there is a point of what Dr. Richards mentioned. There is time is brain here as well. And it's probably best described in the warfarin-related literature, um, especially depending on where their initial presentations and in their labs are, their INR, some of their other coag labs, et cetera. For, for me, yeah, I mean, really dissecting that data, when you look at what's out there, and again, you're really getting into a niche when you look at something in the head. But you know, at the end of the day, I look at some work that some of my colleagues have done. Um, Corinne Berger, when she was at New York Presbyterian, um, they did a retrospective analysis that actually found 94.7% hemostatic effectiveness and reversal between dabigatran, rivaroxaban, and apixaban. And it was actually 100% in what's becoming the more common of those agents in apixaban and rivaroxaban. Now, small numbers. You need to keep that in, into account. You're not going to find huge studies. I don't want to sound like a broken record, um, but there's truth to that. And then other centers, Yale New Haven had a, a study that came out that compared the two strategies, you know, four-factor PCCs, indexinate alpha, and they found that there was ultimately no difference in, in reversal, in, in any type of uh, morphology or progression of the head bleed, et cetera. And the only one that really challenged that was out of, out of um, the only, or not the only, my apologies, uh, Mass General. And they, they did find that indexinate alpha was actually more effective in, in, as far as Glasgow outcome scale and overall outcomes, but then came out to admit that the patients who were in the PCC group ended up having a lower GCS upon presentation. That's a big deal, between okay. difference between groups. And they actually had more progression in their head bleed. So it's like, well, what do you take from that? It, it's hard to make. And again, these are my colleagues, people who I consider friends from across the country. It's just hard to translate what to do from that. When I think about, and I'm less, believe it or not, I know pharmacy, you can label them as like the cost sheriffs, right? And indexinet, I get, it's expensive. Yes, PCCs aren't cheap either. They're not as expensive as indexinet, but they're way more available. And when I can see studies that are being replicated time and time again, that are showing even partial doses, and when I say partial, I mean something less than 50 units per kilogram of four-factor PCC can be as effective 
as, say, full dose or even indexinate. You gotta be somewhat careful because you gotta make sure you're comparing apples to apples. That seems reasonable to me. The preparation is more straightforward. The, the availability tends to be not as much of an issue. And then, yeah, like you said, when it comes to the macroeconomics of this, it tends to be less of a punch and something you're probably gonna be able to mobilize somewhat with a pun intended, a lot easier in these avenues. Uh, I see what you did there. It was a good dad joke. It's for you. Yeah, you're getting practicing those now. That's really fascinating. And I, I will tell you that represents, uh, from my perspective here, learning from the two of you, a significant shift in thinking in the last three years. When Indexnet Alpha hit the market, the push really was to get it everywhere, right? We we're talking about consignment pharmacy and we're trying to push it out everywhere because we thought that was really necessary. In fact, the statement that I remember um, being most moved by was when the FDA said they will no longer approve anticoagulants without a reversal agent coming to market at the same time that's effective. And I thought that was interesting. And now we're arguing about whether or not four-factor PCCs may in fact be effective for reversal of DOAC efficacy or F effect. Which was exactly why IndexNet came to market in the first place, because we did not believe that the four-factor PCCs were biologically even plausibly effective in this role. And now clinically, we're seeing that they might be, although the heterogeneity inside the data and what you're talking about randomization strategies are tough. So what is the likelihood that we're going to see a randomized prospective head-to-head IndexNet versus four-factor PCC for ICH? So there, <laughs> there, there are some studies ongoing. You're not going to see them guided by drug companies, because again, there's problem. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying anything, you know, that the companies who came out with Indexin and Alpha, because again, you're right, Indexin and Alpha, when it was owned by the original company Portola, they, they developed it in parallel to the, the Trixaban product. Um, and, and that's where it came from. And I thought at the time that was a great idea. All of us were excited, right? When are we going to see that? Well, funding in those types of items can be challenging. It's going to have to be, in, in my best guess, a solid investigator-initiated driven process. Which does, when you look at the product of that drug being as expensive as a loan, will require a fairly hefty grant um, in order to do that, unless someone might get a signal otherwise to suggest that it's worth pursuing on an industry side. Um, I don't know that you're going to, as someone, I don't want the perfect data to be the enemy of great data, to be the enemy of good, and you can keep on going down that ladder. Um, but you know that I am a data-driven practitioner for sure. I don't see a, a robust study like that coming out anytime soon. I won't lie, I double-checked clinicaltrials.gov before coming over here just to see if anything else had changed. Um, it, it hasn't, but there are some groups multi-center, I think through Neurocritical Care Society, but somebody would have to correct me on that because I'm not a member, um, doing a larger evaluation on this. But again, that large randomized prospective, it would be tough to do anyway because of some of the differences between Indexin and Alpha and how it's administrated, PCCs and how it's administrated. The, the blinding to the administrators would be difficult. The blinding to the investigators would certainly be possible. But even then, you're looking at some degree of confounding. So we would always have to accept great rather than excellent. But it, I don't see that coming definitively anytime soon. It's been interesting. Historically, every time we've tried to study ICH, our local rates of ICH dropped to near zero for the entire time that we have the grant funded for some magical reason. So it may be the right answer for curing ICH is to just fund trials in every state. And then, um, you know, Murphy's Law would help us cure ICH. You need a lot of spokes. Yeah, sorry. That's a uh, frustrated researcher comment. All right, gentlemen, last parting comments on this topic. I know this is uh, something that we've touched on briefly in the past. It's complicated, and I don't think it's getting any easier. That's actually what bothers me the most and why I thought it was worth bringing this topic up again. 
There are new agents in the pipeline for reversal. We don't know what those are going to look like or their efficacy, but they're not here quite yet. Um, any idea on timeline for those, Chris? So we uh, last time we talked, we talked about some of the Factor 11 products, and there was just a recent publication in New England Journal of Medicine um, referring to those. You're, you're still kind of in the phase three, probably late phase three with those agents. So we're still years away. So it, it, it is reminding me of that period when all of us knew that Adoracizumab and that Nexnet was coming, and we were all clamoring for it because we were desperate for something. And it was probably a year or two out. That's my best guess, assuming that um, some of those finalities of, of phase three trials do come to an appropriate completion after that. So I anticipate a, a year or two is most likely the anticipated timeline for them. But let's at least raise a glass and toast to the fact that we're not talking about COVID, right? There's truth yeah. to that. All right. And Dr. Richards, as, as you're in your mind developing next iteration of the guidelines that you're going to author on this, um, we making any big changes on how we're moving patients? Well, I think it's important to think about not only in terms of destination, but also time from stroke onset. So I, I think that there actually is, and especially when we think about some of the clinical trials and how to interpret it, is the age of the hemorrhagic stroke as well. So there probably is something about hematoma expansion in that first two hours. We've actually seen this, a, a recent study out of Houston in their mobile stroke unit showed within those two hours the, the increased rate of hematoma expansion. The fastest trial, as you know, is a trial of recombinant factor 7A, but the early signals have shown within two hours again for that hemorrhagic stroke. So there might be an addition to just the agent, the clinical presentation, severity, CT scan, level of certification of the hospital. Maybe it really is, boy, if we can get something in that two minutes. And again, that's where some of the pre-hospital screening and the mobile stroke unit with the CT diagnosis comes into play here too. So that might be yet an additional kind of uh, wrinkle when considering some of these uh, potential guideline changes. I came to you guys for comfort today, and I feel like I'm left with confusion and a sense that it's really hard, that our jobs are really hard. I'm really glad to work alongside guys like you who can think this way um, and help really change the, the landscape, both nationally and locally. Dr. Strogi, Dr. Richards, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate your insights. This has been a recording of the National Stroke Education Center. Thanks for listening today. This Stroke Journey podcast is a collaboration between the National Stroke Education Center, MCRAIG International, and MedEd On The Go. For more comprehensive, high-quality educational resources for healthcare professionals, please visit strokejourney.com.